0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Biography Channel of the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. I'm your host, Dan Hill, and I'm joined today by Kevin McGruder. He is the author of Philip Payton, the Father of Black Harlem. The publisher is Columbia University Press. Kevin is an associate professor of history at Antioch College. He's also the author of Race and Real Estate, and in the 1990s was the director of real estate development for the Obsidian Development Corporation, a nonprofit church-based organization in Harlem. Today's episode is The Man Who Branded Harlem. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So to begin, give us a brief overview of the book, if you will.
0: Sure. Uh, So Philip Payton, the father of Black Harlem, Describes the man who, between 1904 and 1917, marketed Harlem for Black people and helped to facilitate the movement of large numbers of Black people there. And so understanding what he did, I also wanted to understand why he did it and who he was. And so I go into a fair amount of background on his parents, uh, backgrounds, work, uh, the relationships that Philip Payton developed, particularly with Booker T. Washington, who at that time was viewed as the leader of Black Americans and come to an understanding of the life that Philip Payton led and also the times, like what were the challenges and opportunities that were available to him at that time, and so I I really look at all of those things in the book.
1: Okay, yeah, and I very much want to go into that context because there's a lot of interesting things happening in that year, and interesting is maybe a nice way to put some of them because they're pretty mm-hmm. ominous at times. But let's let's go back if we could. Just for, speaking of context, your book "Race and Real Estate," uh, anything that from that book that's that's pertinent and gives us a nice context, a uh, launching point into this book, because surely from that and from your work in Harlem for the Abyssinian Development Corporation. You, you come with unusually strong credentials for such a book as this one.
0: Yeah, the Race and Real Estate book that came out in 2015, and it really explored the times. Uh, so I'm looking in that book, I was looking at the period 1890 to 1920. And the subtitle of that is Conflict and Cooperation in Harlem, 1890 to 1920. And probably most of us are fairly familiar with racial conflict that happens in northern cities as larger numbers of Black people move there in the first decades of the 1900s. And so I look at that, but I also looked at cooperation between white residents of Harlem and Black newcomers, and that's something that we're less familiar with. And then I really wanted to understand why that was happening. And the key kind of thread to both books is real estate transactions, And so having an MBA in real estate finance, working as director of real estate development for a nonprofit organization, I became very familiar with the, in New York City, the uh, organization that records real estate transactions is the city register. In each of the five boroughs, each borough has a city register's office. And there's a wealth of information from those real estate transactions that can be mined and in this case i really needed it because there's not personal papers or are full of payton or business records and so having that uh, really allowed me to get a foundation on who was doing what and also you then using census records to and others to really try to shape fill in the gaps and who these people were
1: Okay. Well, speaking of uh, census numbers, there was some, you know, you gave context early in the book and you mentioned uh, you you grew up in Westfield, Massachusetts. I actually have a friend who teaches college there. So I know the town fairly well, but you, you mentioned a bit uh, going back into the the father and so forth, North Carolina, there's some pretty shocking numbers from where the Confederacy was at in that state going into the war, because there was 331,000, you know, enslaved African-Americans only 34,000 slaveholders out of a white population of over 600,000. That is, if my math's right, about 6% of the white people were slaveholders, yet they seem to have dominated that economy. What's their equivalency in Harlem? Who are the big players that Philip finds himself up against?
0: The Harlem was developed uh, as an urban community in the late 1800s, 1890s, uh, 1880s, 1890s. And by the time Philip Payton is in New York, he moves there in 1899 and is, has dropped out of high school. And his prospects, if you looked at him on paper, didn't look that good. But the one of the jobs that he gets, uh, he loses his first job, but then gets a job with a man named Charles Schuyler, who was a major development of the Upper West Side. And Peyton is working as a porter. there. So it's a menial job, but he's an inquisitive person. He grew up, he comes from a family of, of entrepreneurs, both his parents, his father was a barber, his mother was a hairdresser. And so as he's in his office, he describes seeing the building of the Upper West Side. And Skyler was a major figure in that. And Peyton in that gets the idea to start a real estate agency and his initial partner Albert Brown only stays with him for a year but Peyton stays with it and by 1904 when there's a he's moving out in in a bigger way and what precipitates that move is an organization called the Hudson Realty Company which was made up of some of the leaders of The older families in New York, uh, the Morgenthau family, the Bloomingdale family of the Bloomingdale department store, that firm had started in the 1890s. And by 1904, they're looking at land adjacent to where the Harlem, uh, one of the Harlem stops on the subway is going to be at 135th Street and Lenox Avenue. And the subway was scheduled to open in the fall of 1904. And then earlier in that year, in 1904, they begin buying up vacant land and occupied buildings in that 135th and Lenox Avenue area. And then in the spring, they ser- serve eviction notices on the residents of the buildings. And a fair amount of the residents are Black. And typically, probably Black residents would have just left quietly But that area had been, uh, it's really three blocks, 134th, 133rd, 135th Street between Lenox and Fifth Avenue. Black people had been living there since the 1890s. And so they were firmly established in their eyes. And so they challenged that. And I haven't been able to figure out if they actually end up being evicted. But what I do know is Peyton and a handful of other Black investors begin buying property and they buy it from white property owners, mainly German-Americans who are not in alignment with the hostility against black people that Hudson's efforts represent. And that's what really launches Philip Payton in the public eye, citywide at least, and then soon nationally, is that conflict because it's like a chess game that Hudson Realty had bought property trying to assemble a large expanse and Peyton and his colleagues purchases block that. And by the end of the year, Hudson Realty sells their properties. And by the summer of 1904, Peyton announces the incorporation of the Afro-American Realty company with a flourish um, in terms of publicity, a prospectus, and uh, a vision of what would, what was then called a race enterprise. It would be a, a company, what we would call now for us and by us. Um, it's the 1904 equivalent to that. And um, it very much fits with uh, the thinking of some African-Americans in terms of self-determination. And by this time he is already uh, in Booker T. Washington's inner circle. And when He is successful in these purchases. Booker T. Washington, who spends a lot of time in New York, sends him a congratulatory telegram saying you have triumphed both in terms of real estate and for the race. And so that effort of his is framed as a race enterprise, as something that's going to benefit black people.
1: Yeah, well, that's a pretty heady start. And I, the audaciousness of this is quite amazing. I mean, you, he's very young. Right. Um, and he's up against, <laughs> yeah, he's 28 years old. And he's up against, you know, uh, deep pockets to say the least, uh, given the kind of, uh, you know, pedigree that the Hudson Realty Company has. Where did he, you know, you you raised this, you know, where did he in fact find this drive? Yes, his parents are entrepreneurs, but they're in Westfield. He, he's taking on New York City. Um, that's That's quite a step up.
0: I think I think it's a combination of things. Um, something that I think often we don't understand now is that Black people's expectations at that time, many Black people's expectations was that with hard work, they would be able to live the American dream, and they really did not see what we now, looking back, we can see not just segregation that they might have lived through in the late 1800s, but how it's going to grow uh, in the teens and increase in some ways. And so there's an optimism that a lot of them have. And that's really why Booker T. Washington is so important, because he was one of the promoters of that optimistic view. And so some people assume that Black men like Peyton were naive. And I think what they don't understand is that So Black people at that time often were being told, you don't have equal rights because you haven't prospered enough. And so they felt with prosperity, they met that criteria and they would have their rights. And so that's one. And then personally, there's some elements of sibling rivalry that that are going on. Uh, Peyton had an older sister. She goes to Westfield Normal uh, school, a uh, teaching college, which is now Westfield State, um, while he has dropped out of school and is working in his father's barber shop. And the year that he decides to move to New York, 1899, his brother, who is uh, James, who is a year younger than him, is about to graduate from Yale with a degree in classics. And he even implies that his parents really want it better for him than working in a barbershop. A barbershop was a very good career for Black men at the time. But his parents, mother and father, his mother was a hairdresser. It's like many, most parents, they want their children to go to the next level. And so there's that drive. And then the fact that his brother is at Yale, all of those things seem to propel him to move to New York. And he even talks about if he didn't do it then, he didn't know when he was going to do it. And so he's 23 when he moves. Then when he gets there, what we see is um, his ingenuity and promotion. And some of that, there's evidence of it even earlier. So he did drop out of school, but he fashioned a graduation picture um, that uh, I have in the book. And, I don't know how he used it, but he uh, he definitely understood the power of an image. And that's what he begins to do in New York. Um, we don't know exactly how he gets to work in Skyler's office, but Westfield, there was a tie between good students in Westfield going to Yale. So that's how his brothers get there, but others do as well. Skyler is a, went to Yale, didn't graduate, but went to Yale. And so it's there's probably a connection there that opens that door. And so some of it's that. Um, And some of it, I haven't been able to answer. He, he, you know, there are some people who have that kind of drive that no matter what setback happens, they believe they can rise to the occasion. And that's really what he was doing uh, for really the rest of his life. He was kind of having challenges, but then regrouping and coming back.
1: Yeah, no, you know, for instance, that the perspectives he put out is, you know, very nicely done. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he's intent on making a splash. So so you mentioned context. And I want to go to a couple of things that happened in the same time frame. So, you know, it's 1904 that he launches, launches the Afro-American Realty Company. It is merely one year before that Dubois comes out with his famous book, The Souls of Black Folk. Mm -hmm. It's merely one year after that, unfortunately, that Thomas Dixon comes out with the Klansman. Um, There's a lot of things happening at the start of the 21st century. Do you want to just walk us through that a bit more?
0: Sure. Um, I I think that a, a very strong factor in Peyton kind of coming to Blackness was a year that he spent going to Livingston College, the high school branch of it. He was in high school. He he was hanging out with the wrong crowd, and his father wants to get him out of Westfield and sends him to Livingston. His father was friends with the president, a man named J.C. Price. Price was really the founding president of Livingston. It it's a college of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Salisbury, North Carolina. W.E.B. Du Bois described J.C. Price as building a Harvard of the south. And so there's that that dynamic leader. Price dies soon after Peyton gets there. But Peyton spends that year in at what we now call a historically black college. Westfield had a very small black population. So this is really the first time that Peyton is living among predominantly Black people. And there is a parallel to Du Bois. Du Bois went to Fisk from Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He's a little bit older than Peyton. But it's that experience that leads him to write The Souls of Black Folk, that he didn't grow up around a lot of Black people, but now he's ensconced among Blackness. And The Souls of Black Folk is a celebration of that. And so Peyton comes to that in the same way. Peyton was a Booker T Washington follower. I don't have evidence that he was part of the Niagara movement, which Du Bois forms later. But Peyton, there were some people who had feet in both camps of Du Bois and of Washington. I can't, I don't have evidence that Peyton was in both camps, but some of the things he does, and actually even his confrontational nature with the white power structure, that really is not the strategy that Booker T. Washington recommends. Exactly. Yes. But it's fascinating because he doesn't get cast out as he does it, that he stays within Booker T. Washington's fold, even as some of the things he does, I think from a strategic point of view, create the backlash that he experiences later. And the actions that he takes are really more in alignment with what you would expect a follower of Du Bois to do. And so there's all of those influences and he's kind of navigating them um, during that time. And and what he's also navigating is the growing segregation in New York City. That it's not to say that New York was a utopia before, um, but there were segregation practices that were relatively somewhat porous. But as larger numbers of Black people moved there, they hardened. And um, in the Race in Real Estate book, I talk about um, Booker T. Washington's assistant, Emmett Scott, who traveled to New York a lot too. And there's a letter where Emmett Scott is writing to the hotels in New York, finding a place where he can stay, where five or 10 years before, he could stay at any place downtown. And this is probably the teens by that time. And he's getting replies, there's no place you can stay here. And that's the change and if I have my numbers right I think it's during the uh, during the time when uh, Woodrow Wilson becomes president Woodrow Wilson segregates uh, the federal uh, Employment service which was not segregated before and his presidency brings in a wave of kind of uh, hardened segregation practices that is in alignment with what's happening in Northern cities. And so in some ways, Peyton needed to rise to the resistance that he was seeing. Um, And so it's not just gratuitous confrontation that he has in some cases. Uh, If he didn't, he might've been blocked totally and he wouldn't have a business then.
1: Yeah, no, the, the ties are definitely shifting a bit. And for anyone who, of course, thinks that Woodrow Wilson's this benign uh, former president of Princeton University, yeah, there's a lot more going on, unfortunately, with Woodrow Wilson's and, administration.
0: And you also mentioned yeah. Thomas Dixon. Um, yeah. Peyton is on that radar. <laughs> uh, in, in the book I talk about, uh, they try to kind of bait him into— Yeah, uh, goad him, goed him, yeah, yes. him yes. into goad him into— Uh, speaking out against the Klansman play when that's going to be in New York. And he he doesn't take the bait in that way. Um, And so he understands media as much as Dixon does. And so, you know, he's a worthy opponent in that case.
1: Yeah. But it seems to me you're going back to the Livingston College, you know, that dynamic leader that was at that college does seem to be Part of his style and part of his 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 daring, but yes, the, the vice is closing in some ways. Right. Um, you have a really important term in the book, racial capitalism. It seems to me we would be amiss to get out of this interview without bringing that up.
0: Mm-hmm. What,
1: what does it mean and what's its significance in the context of this book? I
0: was an economics major in college and I went to Harvard and sometimes I call it the Vatican of capitalism. <laughs> um, um, you know, when you look at the size of its endowment.
1: Sure. Uh, sure.
0: But there's this way that we think of capitalism as this neutral uh neutral system that runs according to natural laws. And it incorporates all the elements of racism that our country has had from the beginning. And so the conversation that's going on now that's being you know, kind of distorted a distortion of critical race theory is is really um, touches on that. That what so what racial capitalism means is that a black in Peyton's situation, a black businessman forming a business has to navigate the ways that race has been incorporated in the industry that they are in. And so if you look at real estate, first, uh, capital, you need capital to do something. And the reason why those German-Americans are really important for Peyton is because to finance a apartment building purchase in 1904, those apartments were considered risky. So you didn't just go to a bank. Typically, it might be a, an estate that you borrowed from. Um, in Peyton's case, he's able to borrow from the seller that they take back a mortgage for that. And there's not a racial aspect to that situation, but if you're a Black person in 1904 and you don't understand that you don't have the same access to to capital or even to those lenders, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. And so yep. Peyton, so he is navigating that. What also is is part of this is, so the Morgenthaws, the Bloomingdales, that is multi-generational wealth that gives them power to enter the field. Peyton's family were entrepreneurs. They owned a building in Westfield. In terms, relative to other Black people, they were relatively well off. But I don't have any evidence that they had the kind of capital that would allow him to move forward with their investment. And so he's really he's really on his own in doing this. And that's how most black entrepreneurs of the time are. And so they're working at a disadvantage and they know it. And that's why when he forms that company, he has about a dozen black entrepreneurs, most of them are older than him, but there's no way he could do this company by himself. Um, whereas Hudson has fewer partners because they're, each of them are bringing a lot of money, (laughs) lots of assets. And so he's not doing that. And then the overlay in terms of real estate is this is a period where, uh, there's a book called The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Mohammed, who is a former uh, director of um, uh, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. He's now uh, a professor at Harvard Kennedy School. But he looks at the late 1800s in terms of crime and he uses this phrase. This is the period where race is being written into crime. The period that Peyton is active, that those first decades of the 1900s, is the period where race is being written into real estate. Because what's happening is... The notion that the presence of Black people alone, no matter what their economic status, lowers property values, that's being written into real estate practices. The real estate industry professionalizes during this period. And when they do, this is after Peyton's death in the 20s, when the National Association of Realtors writes their Code of Ethics, they write into it that you cannot introduce a black person into a predominantly white neighborhood. Black people can't even use the term realtors. And yeah, so, that was amazing
1: when I read that in the right? book.
0: And so yeah. this is the it's, and so those practices don't come out of nowhere. They're being developed during Peyton's life, and so that's what I mean by racial capitalism: is that there's a way that race it dictates the environment that he is operating in. And if he ignored that, he wouldn't have been able to survive at all.
1: Okay. So they you know we, we did mention you've alluded to earlier that you know not everything turned out as as Payton promised in his prospectus and some of his certainly the forces he faced. Uh, but going back to that prospectus, if I remember right, it promises investors and he's eager to cobble together what he can because he's up against the powers to be. Uh, that the, the returns might be in the range of 7 to 10%. Uh, it seems like from, from the book you your recounting, uh, there was a struggle to get close to that. He did face a lawsuit. I mean, as he goes through all these different issues and trying to make it work, uh, do you think Booker T. Washington was aware of the, the struggles that uh, Peyton had and just kind of turned a blind eye? He didn't have the time to pay attention. He, he realized you know, that Peyton had a tough hand to play. Uh, any sense or any projector you can give us of both what happened for Peyton and, and how Booker T. Washington might have might have seen the the unfolding of this?
0: I, Booker T. Washington, I believe, knew very well what was happening because Emmett Scott, his right hand man, was an officer of the company, ah, and okay. so uh, he knew. But another reason why I know that is that Peyton and his wife Maggie entertain regularly at their home on 131st Street between Lenox and 5th Avenue in Harlem. And often the guest list was in the New York Age, which was the Black Paper of Record at the time. And often the guest was Booker T. Washington. So he was in their home. And even when Peyton is having struggles, um, Washington is in the circle, doesn't cast him out. Um, Washington dies in 1915. And to the end, Peyton is part of that circle. So I'm sure that Washington might have been disappointed by some of the setbacks Peyton experienced. But if you think about Washington's philosophy, you have setbacks and then you work and move forward. That's what Peyton was doing. And so um, I don't have any evidence that that there was any break uh, with Washington Um and both because of Emmett Scott's relationship, and but also Peyton had a, a direct relationship with Washington.
1: Sure. And, in that and, if, and if not, Peyton, Peyton only lives two more years after Washington's Correct. Term. Right. In
0: that perspective, he did oversell that the standard return for real estate during that time was 6%. And as soon as I saw that 7 to 10%, it's like, well, how's he going to do that? Um, and he couldn't, and that's part of the reason for the lawsuit, but the, that lawsuit is very fishy, (laughs) um, that the person representing the plaintiffs is the, the, his attorney who was one of his officers who wrote the prospectus, but the suit claims that the prospectus was fraudulent. And so the attorney, and that comes out in court that the attorney is the one who wrote it. So I haven't been able to figure out everything that's behind that, um, but it's, it's a strange suit. But Peyton did overpromise some of the things that were in it.
1: Sure. Well, when I read the 7 to 10%, uh, my mind flashed to Bernie Madoff because I just mm-hmm. thought, well, that's a it's a pretty healthy return that you're promising you're in, you're out. Um, bring the, us up to date. There's dating.
0: no signs of a, of a shell game here, though. <laughs> no, no, no he there's, there's not. Game, though, but and, he, and, he
1: did, and he did not end up in prison. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah. You did not bilk a bunch of people out of their life savings, including nonprofits, right? Um, yeah, as Bernie Madoff did. In fact, the, the name Bernie Madoff—he made off with everyone else's exactly. money—is is it's almost one of these too exactly. good to be true jokes. Exactly. Let's finally bring us up to date. So, you know, you've worked in Harlem in the real estate arena. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the community stand today? Any kind of closing thoughts you might have on, on that front?
0: The. The future that James Weldon Johnson predicted in Black Manhattan, which he wrote in 1930, is really coming about. He was asking, "How long will black people be able to hold on to Harlem?" Um, I was there last week, and you know, there is a substantial number of black people in Harlem on the streets. Um, there's some large residential buildings being built in and completed in various areas that you know. I suspect. Are predominantly not black people living there, and so uh, there are changes happening at this point, and uh, you know, so some of them, those changes are the legacy of kind of the racial capitalism that we were talking about. That, um, but some represent opportunities that black people owned buildings were able to do very well with the uh, increase in property values. I owned an apartment that I bought in 1987 a co-op apartment and sold it two years ago and so I I know you know kind of what the appreciation was at least you know for me and for others and so there's this kind of double-edged sword to to the changes that have happened in Harlem.
1: okay. Um, in fact, yes, I have a closing epigram in a moment that kind of speaks to the ongoing <laughs> difficulties and struggles um, and government role in some of this. So, I want to thank you, Kevin, very much for being on the show. This is the New Books Network's Biography Channel. My guest has been Kevin McGruder. He is the author of Philip Payton, the Father of Black Harlem. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes, uh, other episodes rather, in the Biography Channel. By going to the New Books Network platform itself. Finally, a concluding epigram. In this case, I'm quoting from Charles Abram, who says, "The government has offered such bounties to builders and lenders that they could have required compliance with a non-discrimination policy. Instead, the FHA adopted a racial policy that could well have been called for the Nuremberg Laws." Until next time, be kind and stay safe.